everybody. Some quick business up top since this ep was recorded earlier. As you may have seen, I've been trying to get the word out that our show tomorrow, October 14th, at the Town Hall Theater in New York City starts at 8 p.m. sharp. Doors at 7, show at 8. The Town Hall's website had erroneously posted a 7 p.m. start. That is incorrect. The show is at 8 p.m. And if you're in NYC, there are still a few tickets left for this. This show is going to be our biggest show ever by audience size. There's going to be music, special guests. I plug this shit enough. Ticks are at chapotraphouse.com slash live. Make it if you can. It will be one for the books. See you tomorrow if you're in NYC. In the meantime, enjoy this entry in the inebriated past. Hello, folks. Uh, Matt Crispin here, introducing you to the first episode of what we're hoping to turn into a series uh, about the United States and its neighbor to the south, Mexico. Uh, Mexican-American relations are one of the key components of contemporary politics, as we all know, and have been incredibly important in shaping both countries uh, throughout their histories. And to start with, uh, I wanted to begin with the sort of the the primal scene of American-Mexican relationships, which is, of course, the Mexican-American War. Uh, uh, and to help me with that, uh, we have here uh, scholar, author, handsome man about town, uh, Matt Carp, to talk talk it through. How you doing? Is, I have to buzz you on that already. You've 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 said Mexican American War twice, Matt. That's not the preferred nomenclature. We are all Americans in this hemisphere. Ah, it crap. is the U.S. Mexico War, which appropriately puts the onus for the invasion on the United States, which is which is accurate. Yes. And um and we should we should we should dispense with all the Americanisms from now on. Well, you know what? The way I think of it, uh, Amerigo Vespucci was a fraud and a pimp. So I think it makes sense that Americans should should be us, should be the, the, uh, the nation of con artists and their dupes uh, that currently dominates the globe. We're the Americans. It's That's true. The state, you, you know, Estados Unidos doesn't quite doesn't quite land in the same way. Well, I, I, properly, it should be, I guess, the, the Yankee War or something like that. Yeah, but, now um, we're talking. But are you guys calling this series? This is cliche, but it's such a great line. So far from God, the uh, <laughs> yeah. Orfeo Diaz. Yes, that's that's it exactly. So because far from God, yeah. so close to the United States. I always assumed he didn't say that because he he always seemed like kind of a dumbass. But uh, you know, also his whole finds, finds a nut. I know I know like four things about that guy, but one of them is that he oriented his you know the sort of Mexican economy uh, in conjunction with the United with American capital, like no. Like no other Mexican leader, he achieved yeah. that relationship as much as anyone. I mean, up until the 19th century, not that we need to get into this, but, you know, Mexico had its trading relationships with Europe were at least as important uh, for a long time as with the United States. I think it was that's really a that's like almost like a porforiato achievement in the late 19th century to put the U.S. as a kind of, you know, economic overlord of Mexico. So he, yeah. I guess he knew what he was talking about, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, he was essentially recognizing the uh, grim and unalterable reality that that uh, the U.S. wasn't going to really be uh, accepting other suitors for for Mexican industry. Um, yeah. But yeah. one of the reasons that they find themselves in that position in the late 19th century is because uh, they had half their territory straight jacked by the United States in the uh, 1840s, uh, which had the effect of uh, massively increasing the United States size, but also pretty much guaranteeing uh, a civil war uh, and fa fatally uh, undermining the stability of the second party system that until that point had been uh, doing okay at managing the burgeoning sectional crisis. That's certainly the sort of tra sort of satisfyingly kind of tragic ironic arc that we like to we like to tell ourselves i have a little bit of reservations about some parts of that narrative because it's it, it, it feels like it's like we we so badly want these assholes to get their comeuppance and they, and they did and they did but was it I, and maybe we can get into that later we you and i can bat that around about whether you know what the actual impact was on the the sectional crisis but you know i, I assume that'll become you know we should okay we should fighting part first maybe I guess, but that is an intriguing question. So you're you're suggesting that if, say, uh, Henry Clay hadn't been such a persnickety baby and he'd accepted that vice presidential nominee nomination when it was offered to him, and he became president instead of uh, instead of if, if it had been for James Bernie and his Bernie Bros in New York, <laughs> right? 
if Clay uh, had won. Right. If Clay had won and we had not had a Mexican war, that that would not have really done anything to delay the arrival of the Civil War. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's questionable. I mean, I think, I think, you know, whatever we, this, this gets us into the weeds of the 1850s and we've, you know, where we are quite happy to live, but, um, the, 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 the breakup of the second party system happened. Yes. It was the concatenation of lots of things absolutely accelerated by the, the, the tumult over the Wilma Proviso and the question of slavery in California and the Mexican session and so on. But that was largely arranged and settled by, um, by the, the, you know, the armistice of 1850. Um, and what the things that, that the, the event, obviously that, you know, this is just recounting the, the timeline, but the event that, that, that jump started and really electrocuted the party system was, was Kansas, Nebraska. And that, that was coming regardless of what happened in the far West. And I guess I'm struck by in a lot of these, it's, it's really hard to run this counterfactual tape. I actually wrote a whole first year grad paper, like on that precise question about, you know, Clay getting elected. There's a great piece in the if you really want to go nerdy what if history counterfactual there's the a very rare scholarly article by this guy gary cornblith the historian at oberlin that was actually published by the journal of american history that follows that narrative all the way to the end you know clay is elected in 44 there and and and, and, you know all the other assumptions prevail there's no annexation there's no war there's no uh seizure of the southern southwest third of north america um and, you know, he 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 follows that tale to sort of effectively, you know, in his mind, make the argument that this was essential. But I've that sat uneasily with me for a really long time. I mean, I do think that, you know, think a million things would have been different, but you still were going to face the question of slavery's expansion to the Great Plains. And I'm struck in those negotiations in the 50s, how little people really are not. I don't say they don't care about New Mexico, but New Mexico and the status of slavery in the in those Mexican lands after California is kind of. You know, everyone's willing to fudge that a little bit. They they do not want slavery in the Louisiana Purchase on the Great Plains. And so I don't know. I mean, th- there's a lot more to it than this. But on just on that narrow sense, I also have an issue with this. Um, yeah, just that sort of almost implotment of, uh, OK, there's this, you know, there's this Emerson quote that is trotted out in every it's in it's in uh, Battle Cry of Freedom. It's in every history of the American Civil War, really, or every history of the, the U.S.-Mexico War. You know, Mexico will be to us you know, uh, as arsenic is to the, to the hungry man, you know, we will consume it, but Mexico will poison us. And that there is that like, you know, it's very satisfying to be like, he was right. Um, you know, even Calhoun called it forbidden fruit. There's a lot of consumption metaphors in 19th century American history. It's a lot of, it's a hungry nation, but, um, and sometimes it, 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 it eats more than it can handle. I mean, I I don't want to completely reject it, but I think, I think if you look at what the Mexican, what the U.S.-Mexico war, sorry, actually achieved, you know, I, 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 this, I try to make this case in the book that it's, it really achieved the sort of the cold fact of American hegemony over the entire North American landmass that was never altered. And it, sure, it didn't like resolve the sectional crisis or the question of slavery, but I'm not so sure that it, that the ironic flavor doesn't triumph this, doesn't, doesn't, um, overcome, um, it's it's sort of achievements in in general for you know uh, grandiose U.S. power and you know that that might have happened you know irrespective of the civil wars you know um, outbreak. Okay, so let's start off then with uh, the situation on the uh, eve of the Mexican uh, the, the the outbreak of of hostilities uh, and specifically the uh, annexation of Texas which uh, in many ways makes the Mexican-American War inevitable, uh, uh, and which as such was something that was uh, uh, significantly controversial uh, and saw a a large amount of specifically Whig resistance, uh, but which was made possible uh, by uh, the election of one man, our only mulleted president, James K. Polk of Tennessee. Uh, So what's the deal with young Hickory and which, what political coalition uh, does he represent? Our only mulleted president so far, Matt. Yeah, that's you true. Have to clarify Gen Z is bringing it back. So I'm expecting a mullet in 2050. Before but, or after the weird perm thing that they have now? <laughs> I don't know. First president with a fade. I'm also looking <laughs> forward to that. Uh, I guess did Obama, Obama didn't have one, right? He never, no, he, he never, didn't. he didn't get never interesting, never got it. nutty with it. He never got no. interesting with it, which is yeah. very much par for the course. Yeah. 
so and Clinton. OK, well, we'll we'll leave that. I don't I don't have a lot of takes on Clinton's hair. Um, yeah, it was Polk. I mean, but really it was Tyler. You know, I mean, this is the sort of the the slippage between um, between the sort of his acts, you know, his accidency, um, his his, you know, accidental ejaculation, John Tyler and uh, who really masterminded. Uh, his White House really masterminded the diplomacy that led to the annexation of Texas in the in 1843 and 44, um, even though they couldn't get the job through Congress. Um, you know, he really laid the groundwork for it. And really, I mean, it was it was it, one of these genuine, you know, doing my dissertation convinced me of this. It's a genuine moment where uh, a conspiratorial cabal, not the only one, but but one where you can actually sort of be sure through the documents um, that uh, a conspiratorial cabal of sort of like-minded ideologues took over U.S. foreign policy and commandeered it toward a very consequential object. Now, of course, there was broad support for the annexation of Texas in the country. It wouldn't have been possible if, if it would have been more difficult if, if most of the country loathed the idea. But the political class of the Jacksonian era was not keen on annexing Texas. Even, even Andrew Jackson himself was leery about these kinds of consequences for destabilization that you're talking about, about the party system, about a war with Mexico. And it's not like Jackson really was afraid of fighting or, you know, had anything but 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 delight at the thought of a war with Mexico in some senses. But he was cautious as president. And even um, into the 1840s, he was a little bit uh, skeptical. What but what 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 type hypercharged this was this this cabal under Tyler, his first secretary of state, Abel Upshur. His second secretary of state, none other than John C. Calhoun himself, and um, the kind of knit the knot of pro-slavery intellectuals around them who were feeding them advice, who were this guy Duff Green, who's going all around the capitals of Europe and into Texas and Mexico. Um, the, the fear that Great Britain was going to intervene to somehow destabilize slavery in Texas really hypercharges this effort to get Me Texas into the Union at all costs, regardless of domestic political re repercussions. And I think they win over a kind of dominant majority of Southern Democrats for that, including Jackson and consequentially including Polk. Um, and that helps get Polk the nomination. That's why he's nominated in the first place is to be the Texas guy. Um, they, they, the, the Democrats in, in 44 in Baltimore fend off uh, the Southerners basically install this two thirds rule so that, um, you know, Van Buren, who's overwhelmingly the, uh, the sort of the, wouldn't say the DNC, but <laughs> it wasn't the DNC, but he was overwhelmingly the kind of political hack favorite to win the nomination is stalled. Certainly the Northern favorite um, is stalled. Can't get over the two thirds line. Would have been interesting if uh, Bernie had tried to pull a two thirds rule. I mean, it wouldn't have helped. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the South blocks Van Buren's nomination and it falls to the, you know, the, the dark horse uh, 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 Polk, who in office then rapidly proceeds with the annexation project that Tyler has laid out. So Polk, uh, you know, Texas is in the union effectively in within a few weeks of, of, of Polk's administration in early 1845. And by that point, U.S.-Mexico relations are really breaking down. I always feel for Van Buren there. He spent his entire career kissing this fucking people's asses. <laughs> he did. <laughs> like, uh, the key to power is just not pissing off Southerners, and it just still wasn't good enough to get the damn nomination. Passed. He forged this coalition that became the yeah, dominant force it. in antebellum politics, you know, what, 20 years ago. Letters to the, to the Richmond Junto and shit, and it just <laughs> yeah. means nothing. Yeah, it got him nowhere. It's true. What are you doing? It's what true. have you done for us lately? Yeah. Martin Van Ruin? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, and his his loyalists. I mean, that's obviously the the barn burner story four years later. But some of the the hardcore Van Burenites were, um, you know, were so pissed off. I think um, Silas Wright, who's one of the New Yorkers around him, was was offered the vice presidency, turned it down flat out. Which I think is actually a pretty rare event in American history that that uh, an offer, a direct offer of of even Veep, is tendered and just rejected without mercy, um, just just out of loyalty to Matty Van. Um, those guys had spirit anyway, the, the, That's the true. Albany Regency. Yeah. So, uh, Polk in office assures annexation of Texas. And then very shortly after a intentional campaign of military provocation on the border at the notorious Nuensis, Nuensis strip. Yeah, uh, classic. Yeah. Beautiful country out there. Yeah. Um, I don't think it is. I, I genuinely don't <laughs> think it is. I cannot read. I, I reviewed a book on the Civil War in the Rio Grande and the number of kind of, you know, all, written by historians in the Rio Grande Valley. I'm sure 
there's a poetry to the place like there is any other. But just this description of sort of flat, bug infested, you know, sw- both both it's both dry and swampy at the same time. No relief to the terrain. It's just it just does feel like one of the most difficult. Pl- I mean, and if you look at some of those counties, even today in Texas, like which we've been looking at with the 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 what's his name, the run against um that blue dog Democrat down there. I've been looking at those counties. There's some of those counties still in that Nueces strip where there's like 75 people live in it. You know, it, yeah. it's just uninhabitable uh, outside of the settlements. Anyway, um, yeah, he sends Zachary Taylor and his army of occupation to just go right up to the maximal border claim that that that, that Texas, the independent Republic of Texas had, had asserted. Uh, Mexico had never recognized Texas as independence full stop. But that was kind of a bit of a of a paper thing. You know, in reality, Texas had been around for 10 years. It was fragile, but it had been established. And could Mexico have swallowed some form of the annexation of Texas? That's another interesting counterfactual because so many different factions in Mexican politics, you know, it was always possible for somebody to oust another faction by saying you're being too soft on the Americans. But um, it's possible. But the way Polk did it, it was impossible because they they jammed the army right up to the hilt of Texas's very dubious border claim. And then they sent at this belligerent diplomat, John Slidell, Louisiana senator, who was totally in it. Um, they named him a minister when he, he should have just been a commissioner. They did all of the little diplomacy wrong in this in this way that ignorance shades into, you know, neglect shades into disregard, shades into outright contempt. And they knew what they were doing. They were hoping, you know, Polk wrote stuff in his diary like, uh, well, perhaps a declaration of war may not be necessary. You know, it's like it's very clear what they were expecting. Um, Mexico couldn't tolerate this. I mean, actually, the president at the time, uh, Herrera, who was, uh, I think, uh, uh, one of the the sort of the, the, the federalists, the liberals of the kind of Mexican party in the early 19th century is divided between centralists who are conservatives and sort of liberals who are federalists who are more kind of enlightenment types. The centralists were more, this is very crude, um, were more um, kind of, you know, God and, not, not God and king, but church and uh, church and strong central government um, uh, rulers. Anyway, so this liberal Harara wants to make a deal, or at least could imagine making a deal with him, but not the way that uh, Polk conducted these negotiations, not the way he jammed Taylor right up to the hill to the border. He sent the largest peacetime squadron in U.S. Navy history to date to the Gulf of Mexico. Everything is screaming war. He did a Putin, basically. Hmm. Um, you know, honestly, everything is screaming war, war, war. And there really wasn't much Harara could do. And he ends up getting cooed by a centralist general who marches down to Mexico City and says, all right, Americans, back off. You, you're, you know, you're an Ill- illegal occupation of Mexican land. It's on. And at that point, not only is war inevitable, it's just a question of, you know, timing, like what hour of the day that there'll be this first skirmish in this disputed territory. And uh, this leads to a number of skirmishes. Uh, And in May of uh, 1846, there's a a battle in uh, Palo Alto and uh, Reseda de la Palma, uh, which sees the U.S. uh, uh, route Mexican forces uh, and lets America know this is something that can be won uh, and must be won. And then on the the 11th of May, 1846, the United States officially declares war. Uh, But there is Whig dissent specifically, uh, and more specifically, a young first-term congressman from Illinois uh, named Abraham Lincoln decides to do uh, an epic own by demanding to know the spot where uh, American blood was uh, supposedly spilled that would justify this war and is uh, almost immediately turfed out of office. Yeah. Yeah. He, he doesn't, he, he, he was, that was, that was the, uh, his Lincoln's first nickname derived from this, uh, from this, his antics in Congress during the war, right? He, he was known as spotty Lincoln because he, he kept demanding the spot resolution. <laughs> it's a good one. It didn't really stick, but that was eight Lincoln in the forties. Old spotty, old, spotty. Um, old spotty. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder um, he lost reelection. You can't, you can't, you can't win with that. Nick. He had to go back to the drawing board, get rail split or something. Yeah. Yeah. Some of, some of the, um, uh, some of the Whigs really got at it. Some of them got feisty. Even some of these conservatives who aren't, um, you know, who didn't, didn't become anti-slavery heroes like Lincoln. I mean, there's this Ohio guy. I just looked this up. Uh, Thomas Corwin, who was a, you know, a relatively conservative Whig, not a, 
not a big deal. But, you know, they got really fired up and outraged at, at Polk. And he said something like, uh, the Mexicans will welcome American soldiers with they will greet you with bloody hands and welcome you to hospitable graves. I mean, it was really like uh, it was, you know, in that florid 19th century way. That's so wonderful. Um, but the truth is, in the early moments of the war, um, especially after these first winning battles, I mean, this is where, um, you know, Polk had the Democratic Party behind him and he had a big chunk of, you know, the politically neutral or 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 just the kind of classic American looky lose. I mean, in some ways, this is the U.S.'s first foreign war. That That's obviously not true. The United States had been extending its, you know, its power and dominion over all sorts of um, other peoples from the moment of its inception, you know, including overseas conflicts like in the Barbary Wars and so on. But um, this is the first, it, it, this clearly represents a different kind of a war on a different kind of scale. And the American reaction at home domestically, I mean, it really does fit into all of the, you know, the kind of ugly Chapo stereotypes about, you know, they had a, they had a Palo Alto. I, I know you'll like this, Matt, because it feeds into the, tr one of the deepest American, um, uh, you know, the deepest American religion, actually, it's not Mormonism, although the Mormons were involved. It's, uh, it's, they had a Palo Alto right after the battle, they made a Palo Alto root beer. So they were silly. So they had soda, soda was present in this war. Ah, <laughs> uh, the true American God, soda. <laughs> The great God soda. <laughs> they had to convert it back into corn syrup. Yeah. Uh, although I guess probably root beer was, was different than, I don't know, but, but they had, they, they, there was a kind of, you know, this was an early, it, it coincided with the penny press, right? Famously. So you had, and the telegraph. So you had the first war correspondence. You had the first, you know, newspaper, breathless newspaper coverage of the war. You had it all happening, reading the news from Mexico, this kind of, you know, actually it's interesting. There's a lot of um, Vietnam era scholarship on Mexico that is like, interested in playing with those comparisons between the U.S. and, and Vietnam. And in a lot of ways, there's something about the war with Mexico that feels more 20th century than a lot of these other conflicts. It's it, it both in the kind of skullduggery and the conspiracy that that, that started um, the, the sort of the dark cabals inside Washington. And then in the sort of just brazenly imperial conduct of the war where, um, you know, which involve this really massive undertaking sending by the time, you know, you have Taylor in, in Mexico and I don't, maybe we, we you want to get further into this, but by the time Winfield Scott is doing an amphibious landing in Veracruz, they're bombarding with a huge flotilla. They're bombarding the city of Veracruz. Then he marches all the way up following Cortez's footsteps into Mexico city. Meanwhile, you have the U S Navy active in the Pacific seizing California, marching through to New Mexico. It's an absolutely massive thing that even though it's dwarfed by the scale of the Civil War, the kind of um, overseas projection of power is is, you know, it's really striking and coinciding with a lot of these media phenomenon where people are following the war at home. There are, you know, it, you know, unlike Vietnam, the, the 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 protesters or at least maybe like the beginning of Vietnam, but the U.S. never really had a Palo Alto in Vietnam. Um, you know, you had massive bonfires and parades and, you know, brass bands celebrating, you know, Cerro Gordo, the heroes of uh, Resaca de Bama, you know, and and, you know, it was just a sort of this this mass phenomenon that especially in that first year of the war really drove forward, you know, muted this Whig opposition, which was forceful at times, you know, got the money for the war and and ensured its ultimate um, prosecute, you know, successful prosecution, even uh, in the face of the fact that. The, the army that was supposed to carry out this uh, invasion was a rel uh, un undermanned, underfunded yeah. uh, antebellum military in the time when when democratic orthodoxy would just would not was not going to accede to the building of a of a significant standing army and and early struggles to try to get it into the field. Yeah, they, they had a terrible time with supplies. I mean, it was what it was. Uh, I think the Mexican army I read was is about 25,000 when the war started and the U.S. army is, you know, 13,000. So that the standing army doesn't really exist for all intents and purposes. And, you know, they have to create it. It is it is, though. I mean, I will say just just skimming this stuff again. It does have echoes of, you know, all this American America at war, both, you know, incredible um, you know, foobar, uh, you know, supply chain issues. And yet underneath it, this kind of incredible productive capacity, which was already visible in the 1840s in the sense that they're already, they already, they can shoot out a hundred firearms out of 
you know, the, the, the early Northeastern manufacturing centers where, you know, gun manufacturers, one of the first really heavy industries in the U.S. They, they, there are some things that they struggle to get to get out, but they're, you know, the mills of Massachusetts are firing out shoes, like 12,000 shoes a month for these soldiers for Winfield Scott's army. So even though, yeah, they're getting there by like wagon over this shitty, you know, swampland or, you know, stagnant on, on sailing vessels in the Gulf or whatever, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's incredibly fucked up, but they're under, th- there's this tension between, um, you know, incompetence, you know, laughable incompetence in, in, in many cases. And this sort of, I wouldn't say awe inspiring, maybe more like fear inspiring, but it's just this kind of abundant power of the, that that the, the hints of which are being uh, just beginning to be seen. I mean, obviously this is way before real, real industrialization, but you have, you know, in key articles of war, you know, shoes and guns are up there and the, the Northeast was already doing that. Yeah. And, and we see, yes, the emergence of a pattern that's going to be deepened over time where this America has this nascent capacity or this un often untapped uh, capacity that really only ever gets brought into full being by the war by, and, and essentially by the extra constitutional space that's sort of created by war fighting by, by the need to uh, overlook niceties and, and the, the chains of uh, you know, the chains of legality that, that bind the state otherwise, you know, to our, to our constitutional order. Uh, and at every point it's a war that just bursts forth reveals. War. T- yeah. Reveals new uh, capacities. And then in the aftermath uh, has these new things that, are now permanent fi- fixtures of the American economy and political world. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's like we had this recent rerun of, of it where, you know, you had a pretty spectacular galvanizing event, but it, it didn't produce it didn't produce what a war would have produced, you know, yeah. with COVID anyway. Um, yeah, that's the thing. You, if you, there's nobody to give a gun to, it's no it's no use. <laughs> yeah, not the same kind of mobilization. I mean, I mean, this is going far afield, but it's a question whether our sort of little imperial wars have that impact anymore either, because it's also kind of offstage and 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 managed in a different way. And Mexico is interesting in that way to try to bring it back to that, I guess. The um, the it, it's it's both a, a kind of, you know, small standing army that didn't have, you know, it wasn't like they instituted this huge draft that that that, you know, reached to the heart of the nation and, and transformed it. But you did have a mass volunteer experience, at least in some, at least especially in like the Midwest and the South, where you had, you know, huge numbers of volunteers signing up for this war and following the war, being engaged in the war. It really did produce uh, on the kind of cultural and media levels, that kind of galvanizing um, energy that, you know, you see in only in later wars, (laughs) nowhere else. And and among those people who were at least partially galvanized, you mentioned earlier, uh, and I found this fascinating, uh, the Mormons. This is yeah. the precise period when the Mormons are in the process of moving out to their uh, their imagined Zion in Utah after Joseph Smith has been shot down like a dog. Uh, but they're uh, but in order to gain federal support for their westward migration, uh, Brigham Young has a Mormon battalion drawn up that ends up marching from Iowa to San Diego. Uh, over the course of the war, and, hell of a road trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty impressive. Hell of a hike. Yeah. Uh, at one point, they bump into the Donner, the Donner Party. Uh, people who get discharged from it end up being amongst the first people to discover uh, gold at Sutter's Mill. Uh, it's like it's it's definitely a uh, sort of a, a Forrest Gumpian journey for the for the men of the Mormon battalion there. I wonder if there was a uh, Mormon Bilbo who rode there and back again <laughs> from his little dwelling in Iowa. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that just goes to show how it becomes this national. It really does become a national uh, campaign that, and there's nothing we love more than kicking the shit out of another country. and makes, it makes us remember why we, uh, why we're in this in the first place. Um, yeah. Yeah. I suppose. But among I'd like to talk a little bit about one uh, of the of the figures of incompetence that sort of uh, spoils the broth a little bit. It's the guy. It's also the guy who uh, is credited with making the war happen in the first place, President Polk, uh, because his management of the war uh, is pretty. It's micromanaging. It's uh, deeply politicized. Yeah, uh, and it also includes a hilarious sort of sealed train uh to finland station thing with santa anna that ends up prolonging the war significantly 
Totally. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Well, yeah, because Polk, you know, you have a, you know, Annabellum Republic where the war mongers are Democrats and the war personnel are Whigs, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, Winfield right? Scott, famously, yes. So all the generals, and Zachary, you know, Zachary Taylor, Winfield Scott, several others uh, 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 at the top of the military brass are either Whig, either like actual sort of on the red line Whig or just vaguely Whiggish. You know, that's that's Robert E. Lee, for instance, who's who's, you know, gets his spurs, um, you know, serving under Scott. Uh, and and basically there's a pro- there's a profound um, uh, distrust between that sort of Whiggish army elite and um, the sort of West Point um, brass and uh, the deep state, and, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 the 1846 deep state. Uh, which, which didn't, you know, Polk was trying to drain that swamp. And so he, he's trying to promote, I mean, there is a Trumpian element to this. He's trying, he, he works hard to like, try to get his democratic generals in there. I mean, this is an element of like, that's, that also you can find in every American war, certainly the civil war, there were plenty of political generals. There've been political, there will always be political generals, but there's some cartoonish ones where, you know, Polk appoints, I think Gideon, I think, is it, is it, is it, does he actually appoint, uh, I think it's Gideon Pillow who later had a fort named after him where, um, black troops are murdered during the Civil yes. War. I, he he's utterly he's just a total Democrat bumpkin who you know bombs w- w- when he's deployed. You had you know Franklin Pierce actually you know later uh, oh, later Lord. U.S. president was a was a kind of political general from New Hampshire uh, got there via um, you know Democratic Party connections. Uh, he traveled and- from battle to battle in a barrel of tequila. <laughs> yeah. I think the only action he saw, they said, was when he fell off his horse. The hero of many bottles. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so but so these Whig generals, so there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of static between the Polk administration, Secretary of War Marcy, Secretary of State Buchanan. These all these Democratic kind of you can't really say they're fighting the deep state because they are the ruling, you know, kind of administrative personnel of D.C., even though they also kind of hate administration. But anyway, all of this, th- these apparatchiks are there and the generals, you know, are, you know, and the, these Whig generals are vain and grandstanding in very different ways. You know, Taylor is rumpled and kind of gritty, but totally stubborn and, you know, obsessed with his own ideas about what to do constantly, you know, it, it sort of um, uh, imp- improvising and, you know, sort of make, you know, he captures Monterey and he offers this very generous armistice, uh, you know, and Polk's pissed about that. But none of the guys in Washington really know what the situation is like on the ground and the communications aren't that good. Uh, and then, yeah. And then and then on the higher political level, what you talk about it is it's amazing. So they're, they're trying to figure out they don't really want to conquer. Polk doesn't actually want to do a full scale. Uh, you know, there are factions in the Democratic Party that do. I don't think Polk is one of them want a full scale conquest of Mexico. There is an all Mexico movement and so on. But I think the the kind of majority of the majority of Democrats want something like actually Calhoun's formula, even though he doesn't get along with Polk either, which is, you know, loosely stated the maximum of Mexico and the minimum of Mexicans, um, which is, you know, in their eyes, basically the borders that we got, you know, the Rio Grande west of California. Sometimes they want Baja, California. Sometimes, you know, the border is a bit farther north and it's just, you know, San Francisco Bay and downward. Some interesting counterfactuals there, although I kind of feel like the U.S. was coming for San Diego and Los Angeles anyway. But um, anyway, uh, so there, the, in other words, the big, a big, the big strategic issue for the Americans when the war starts is how do we compel a peace from Mexico? Um, so Polk kind of meand, I mean, Taylor kind of meanders into, um, into, you know, Northern Mexico towards Monterey, fights a couple battles, pushes the Mexican army back, takes Monterey, and then kind of just sits there. Cause at that point he's, he's got to march another hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to even the next significant uh, the next significant strategic point, his supply lines are already in ribbons. It's a, it, it, and it's not really clear. The, the Mexican government is, is, is showing no signs of, of coming to the negotiating table. So meanwhile, you have this on again, off again, hero villain of Mexican politics, Santa Ana, who's been in bed with the conservatives, who's been in bed with the liberals, um, currently out of power, kind of chilling in, in Havana. Um, and and he's sending his emissaries to Polk saying, hey, let me in. I'll make a peace. So there, the U.S. government basically does. Yeah, exactly what the Bolsheviks did. I mean, what the Imperial Germany did in the First World War, where they're like, hey, let's send all the agitators. Let's send all of the, you know, the troublemakers and the potential peacemakers to the internal enemies of the state 
to our opposing party. So they send all the Bolsheviks back, you know, you know, across the front to to, 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 to Russia to help bring down the regime, which works. And the U.S. did the same with, with Santa Ana. There's actually some good comedy about, or yeah, mildly good comedy there. The, 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 he's in Havana, and they send a, uh, a U.S. naval commander. I mean, it's really, it's, it's secret diplomacy because it's like, th- what they're doing is trying to install a puppet who's the most famous political leader of the era. So it's kind of hard to do it covertly, but they don't really, they don't do it very well. This naval commander who's actually... Um, famous for putting down the only U.S. the only mutiny in U.S. naval history, which Melville wrote his story Billy Butt about. This guy Alexander Slidell McKenzie, total hard ass. He just hires a coach in Havana in full dress uniform and goes up to Santa Ana's house and is like, "Okay, here are the conditions. We'll we'll bring you to Mexico and you'll take over and um you'll sell us your territory, right?" And Santa Ana's like, "Uh, well, with the Texas border, why do you guys claim the Rio Grande again? That doesn't make any sense." And and he's like, "Well, because we want it." <laughs> and Santa Ana's like, "All right, deal." And they put him on a ship, on a British ship, and you know the U.S. has this extensive blockade of the coast. The whole navy is in the Gulf of Mexico. They just let Santa Ana waltz on through, um, and he shows up, and then of course he gets there. Um, he's actually at this time sort of interesting, and I'd like to know more about this. He makes an alliance with the kind of most ultra liberal of the Mexicans, this guy, Gomez Farias, um, who is the most sort of um, decentralized, anti, very anti-clerical, very kind of enlightenment liberal, but also kind of a popular populist figure in that way that, you know, liberal populism was a thing in Mexico, kind of of the masses rather than the the grandes and the, the church leaders. Santa Ana, he, Gomez Farias is like ruling in Mexico City and Santa Ana goes to the front. It's like, you fight, I'll govern. There's actually some, I mean, Farias is, in, Gomez Farias is interesting. It'd be, it, it, hopefully you'll get somebody on, on, the, on the, the, the pod who knows more about, about the Mexican history because that, that's an interesting combo. I mean, obviously Santa Ana is a total opportunist and is doing anything he can to stand power. And he resolves, not only does he not, does he welch on the deal, he summons the, the most extensive Mexican counterattack, really the only counterattack of the war. Uh, he leads a huge force against, um, against, uh, against Taylor. And at Buena Vista, he gives him a hell of a fight. It's a really uh, serious, um, bloody battle on both sides. Eventually, he's repulsed, but only after some serious hard fighting. And um, I don't want to say it really could have gone the other way, but um, this the, the, the hundreds dead at Buena Vista are, are completely on, on James K. Polk for the Santa Ana intrigue. Uh, Pobungler, we called him. <laughs> but of course, we must stress that, yes... There's some heavy fighting, some pitched battles, but the vast majority of troops died of crapping themselves, as was true in the Civil War. It would be true in most wars until the uh, the 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 uh, antibiotic revolution. Uh, the the most common way you're going to die in, in in the American army of uh, the Mexican War is uh, shitting in a ditch. Second uh, most then, common, probably in this case, was was dying dying of yakking of the vomito, the yellow fever. Uh, yeah. Which which comes in big in Veracruz, yeah. I, I'm always kind of amazed that they are able to to get people to go fight in these wars because the the idea of dying in battle, I think, does have for young men specifically a certain romance, and and it can get them out the door. I do wonder if they knew how much more likely they were to die shitting, uh, how how much they would have been willing to go to war for that. Because it does seem like it, it's very hard to imagine any romance. It's true. You you can't have a Call of Duty dysentery edition. That doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work. You're confined to your tent. <laughs> you know, like, Press X to shit yourself again. Yeah. You're just banging on the button. Like I remember you told me that there's a the, that a Crispin was the first guy buried in Arlington. Yes. I was like, oh cool. And I look it up. It's like uh dysentery. It's like ah oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah, he was there like a month. Like a, he couldn't have caught a Minet ball or something. He had to just be <laughs> shitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, and I think the conditions in Mexico are arguably even worse than, I guess it depends. Maybe some of the Confederates had it worse, but, uh, but the, 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 the U S army in Mexico did a lot of occupying, you know, it fought a few battles and then it did a lot of, it did a lot of depredations on the countryside. It did a lot of pillaging. It did a lot of, there's, there's plenty of atrocity stories. Um, it did a lot of, you know, frisking of, of random frisking of priests and things like that. You know, there was there was there's plenty oh, of yeah. anti-Catholicism going on. Um, which, yeah. Which led to, in my mind, one of the most fascinating uh, uh, events in it or really any American war, 
which is the defection of the Shamrock Battalion. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Great stuff. It's the, I mean, you actually struggle to think about how this could work in any other war, but basically it's a group of 150-ish, mostly Irish Catholics who are uh, in one way or another, um, you know, uh, conscripted or, or, or um, maybe sort of volunteered out of, you know, sheer poverty into the U.S. Army. That was the number one motivator then as now. It, it, you couldn't get a Dodge Charger or a communications degree, but they would give you some hard tack and a place to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you, you didn't even get health insurance then. You know, it's it, the 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 call was weaker. But anyway, yeah. The so so within within weeks. I mean, so under these conditions, first of all, it must be said the desertion rate is huge, um, especially in Taylor's army in northern Mexico, which does a lot of sitting around. And uh, even in the early days, even after these kind of triumphant victories, the conditions are so miserable, and the whole thing is so sort of thinly policed and surveilled and you know the 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 american military you know sledgehammer touch i mean that is one significant difference you know american wars in the 20th century if you were doing this kind of huge imperial overseas effort you have you know just the bureaucrats that go along with the army you know the the guys in the rear with the gear you really didn't have much of that that was the problem they didn't have enough gear um and 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 as a result it was a lot easier to slip away so of these deserters the most interesting are about 150 up to 200, uh, mostly Irish Catholic, although some German immigrants were in there. I was looking at it. There were some Scots. Um, there were there were a range of, of deserters, uh, one or two African-Americans, you know, who are in the region, um, uh, you know, working in some capacity with the army who slip over to uh, and, and sign up as a brigade to fight for the Mexicans under um, under, you know, as the 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 St. Patrick's, but the San Patricio Battalion, as they say, how they do. And, yeah, they fly. They have a sh- they have a shamrock flag. And, you know, the Kelly Green, there's this guy, John Riley's their commander and they fight like intensely. You know, the every record I've read of this is like they were one of the most devoted units. A lot of the Mexican soldiers, they, they're, they're completely conscripted peasants who have almost no stake in this war. You know, maybe they hate the Yankees, but they um, but they're also involved in they hatred the centralists just as much. They hate, um, you know, various factions, of American politics, they, local politics. They hate their local grande. They hate their neighbor. Um, not very political, not very committed to the war. And so, you know, aren't oh, don't always offer the most determined resistance. Same thing with the officer class, frankly, in the Mexican army, very erratic. And the San Patricios have a stake somehow in this. And yeah, the, the, I was reading it at, Char, at Churubusco, which is one of the bloodier engagements in the Scots campaign towards Mexico City. The officer kill rate in the American army is huge. And you have a sense that these guys are actually just aiming to kill American officers uh, <laughs> in, in combat with the, with the Shamrock Brigade. So in the end, it's, it's not really a happy ending. They, have, they, they mostly get captured and there's 50 of them are, are hung up and executed by the U.S. Army. It's the largest... Uh, max mass execution in U.S. history, not uh, the the Lakota that that were that were hung in the Dakota War in the Civil War, the largest one off. But all these guys were hung over the course of a couple days as part of one unit tried in one as a body. Um, it's it's you know, it's pretty grim, but the penalty for desertion in wartime was death. It's true. You got to figure that that uh, that phenomenon would have been a nice back pocket uh, propaganda for the uh, nativists in America, like these yeah, guys literally the gave war. them guns and they literally <laughs> just ran away and joined <laughs> they, the Mexicans. They, they, yeah, they would. I mean, they love I, the Pope so goddamn much. <laughs> they do. I mean, I think there were really. I mean, it's hard to know whether it was just desperation or kind of you know tedium or or a genuine kind of Catholic sense of you know oppressed nation under the power of this arrogant Anglo-Saxon you know um, you know dominator. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. It is kind of funny to imagine versions of this in other wars. Like imagine uh, like 150 U.S. soldiers slipping away to join like the Republican Guard and, <laughs> and, and become like the most determined outposts of like bathism in in t- 2003. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Uh, one, um, uh, two, three, many John Walker Lins. That would have been great. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A Taliban unit of pissed off American teenagers. Yeah, that's what you would need. You would have needed like the basically the Gray Wolf Brigade. That it'd be ripe, ripe for recruitment, especially if like if Felix offered to lead like a, a Bathist. I think the 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 um the the religious stuff is harder because there isn't that that connection. But if you have some sort of vague secular nationalist thing that's like anti-American, you know, it, it really I, I actually can see Bathism being 
having a kind of ideological lore over disaffected, um, you know, Zoomers and millennials. I mean, if my perusal of memes uh, tells me anything, it's that that is absolutely true. Yeah. There's there's definitely a bath appeal that could have been made. Yeah, uh, and yeah, if, if, if Saddam had put more money into PSYOP, he might have been able to get some sort of fifth column going of people. Yeah, I got the um, what's his name shooting the like gold plated AKs. Like, come on, that's cooler than George W. Bush any day of the week. Like that. What would you call it? Like the the Nasser Brigade or the I don't know what what like the who who's the um who was Baghdad Bob? What was his name? The 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 propaganda minister. Do you guys remember? I just remember them calling him Baghdad Bob. Yeah, I know exactly. Mohammed Saeed Al Saf. Okay, okay, all right. Anyway. But yeah, they should have. They should have. See, uh, I don't think they could have named it after him because he was cringe. No. Yeah, he was, was making cringe. fun of him for been... not telling the like, the sons. About the the sons. Udang Kuse. Now we're talking. Yeah. yeah, those guys. There's some charisma. The Udang Kuse Brze. The UQ UQers. Yeah, everyone remembers. We could just write that Wikipedia entry now, and who would know? The UQers, uh, disaffected youths from Louisville and uh, you know America's suburbs, Appleton, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, th- but this really happened in the in the in the war with Mexico, and it is it is notable. I mean, there was it's a reminder alongside the Mormon stuff of like kind of how, if you will, like ethnically, religiously chaotic this landscape of 19th century North America was, where all sorts of weird alliances and configurations were possible. You know, it's like the same thing with Athenians in the in the Civil War, where you have Confederates teaming up with them in Canada to like rob banks in 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 Vermont and so on, and cause trouble for the Union Army on the basis of some kind of, you know, uh, anti, anti U S government, um, anti Anglo, uh, alliance, uh, you know, you have a lot of, especially on the margins, which is in fairness, most of the continent at this point, you have a lot of possibilities for different sorts of permutations than, than our kind of strict, uh, you know, ideological, you know, a sort of simplified register of just like America's march over the continent, um, would, would have you think. So obviously, you had you had the the Shamrock guys being deeply uh, uh, disillusioned by their part of the war, but then also they're also not happy about it, but also uh, not uh, unhappy enough to do anything about it. We have U.S. Grant, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of true. many uh, future Civil War figures who got cut their teeth in the Mexican War, uh, and he who was doing afterwards heroics. he was doing what he was doing heroics too. Grant, I mean, he wasn't just. He wasn't. I mean, Robert E. Lee was like like sneaking across the desert to set up a cannon. You know, um, Grant was like riding horses, like two horses, one on each leg. You know, kind of doing. He was doing like you know Chinese martial arts stuff. You know, yeah, in, he was doing wire foe. Yeah, in, in in combat, in in in. I think I think he was also in the Scott Army, um, or was he in Taylor's Army? I can't remember. Anyway, he 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 saw intense action. And after the war, he claimed that there was never a more wicked war than that waged by the United States on Mexico. And uh, he said that at the time I thought it then, but I had not the moral courage enough to resign. That's what he said. Also, he had no other skills or idea on what to do with himself. (laughs) We saw what happened to him after he did resign or rather was edged. Shown the door of the tent. (laughs) Gently shown the door of the tent. Yeah, he. He was a drunken saddle maker, you know, or a drunken leather worker in Galena. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, his reputation for being drunk mostly stems from the period after the war when he was manning those those posts in California. And there's like nobody there. Like he, if you don't have a, a smartphone, the, the 19th century version of that would have been a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. There's yeah, nothing there's else no, to do. Yeah. There's not even porn. It's yeah. true. He didn't. There's just nothing. Nothing. I mean, I guess you could. You could go out. I mean, the, the other thing that the, the other thing that was available was, um, you know, murdering indigenous. That's it. You know, that it wasn't was much. Fun. Too squeamish. Yeah, that wasn't Chris Grant's Grant. thing. Um, but yeah, there was there wasn't there wasn't a lot. Um, there wasn't a lot. Yeah, I don't I don't think I, it's true. I shouldn't I shouldn't slander one of the greats in Galena. I think he was he was actually relatively sober. Just just a fail, total just failure. Shitty. Of business. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> shitty. He couldn't just even bad at the job for being bad at saddle making. Just kind of clinging to his father-in-law's like modest largesse. Yeah, that's it. So who else we got coming up there? Who, who, who else is in the uh, Mexican War who ends Almost up everyone. showing Beauregard's up? Beauregard's there. Beauregard was there. Um, um, a lot of the a lot of the B grade guys. I'm actually trying to remember. I should know this. I don't think McClellan was there. He's too young. Yeah, he was. Um, 
you know, I, I should know this better. Was Sherman there? That's a good question. This is where I, I didn't I didn't hit all these guys. There's there's books written on this. He did this not stuff. see action. No, yeah. he was in Northern California. Okay. Yeah, because I don't know. He was dicking around in the Bay Area, apparently. But yeah, a lot of the kind of like division commanders and stuff, a lot of the, the top brass, mostly underneath Taylor and um Taylor and Scott, they were kind of the aged, it was that same sort of Winfield Scott role, that aged generation that was kind of loosely pushed out right at the war began. Like this guy David Twiggs, who was one of the important commanders in, you know, was a Georgian who was in Texas in 1860 and was the big commander in Texas who just gave all of all, you know, where there was actually some unionist sentiment and a unionist governor, Sam Houston, in 1861. And, and Twiggs completely gave away the ghost and just handed everything to the to the Texas Rangers. Uh, uh, but he never really did much for the Confederacy because he was just old balls at that point. <laughs> It's really the, the, the Civil War, the top Civil War guys were like, yeah, they were actually, they were like, you know, lieutenants, basically, yeah. at, the, at this point. So it's a, uh, as we've alluded to, it's essentially a two-pronged invasion of Mexico, Taylor moving the south, uh, north to south, and then uh, Scott, after the amphibious landing, going uh, overland uh, east to west uh, and taking uh, Veracruz. And then finally, in September of 1847, taking Mexico uh, or Mexico yeah. City. Yeah, yeah, it's really an impressive undertaking in in the kind of technical sense. You know, Scott was a, you know, he would have loved Excel. You know, he was a, he was that kind of guy. He was a planner. He was meticulous, old fuss and feathers. You know, he was vain, physically vain, large, imposing man. Actually, had served all the way since the War of 1812. Had a really extended Civil War career before his final kind of comic deployment at the at the um in, in 1861 when he you know is so gout ridden he can barely even you know walk to the to the meetings with lincoln at the beginning of the war but he was a you know he was a tactical i think it's fair to say he, I, I don't know genius but he was impressive tactical commander sort of organizing all of this helped by uh the the sort of even the early vestiges of the war machine but yeah veracruz is a hard city to take because they have this massive castle san juan de ula or I said that horribly wrong, San Juan de Ulua. Anyway, let's let's not try to say that a third time. They have a big castle looking over the harbor that's like totally impregnable, apparently to ship to to bombardment. Um, and it's 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 not an easy, you know, it's not like the U.S. had a lot of experience doing amphibious landings in a totally hostile environment. But they assemble a massive flotilla again for the time, but it is massive. And by anyone's estimation, you know, in a contemporary sense, and they just bomb the hell out of Veracruz. I mean, they do a classic kind of, um, you know, shock and awe. Uh, you know, this is what the U.S. Army does best is lob shit at cities from from very far away. And, um, you know, bombs going off in marketplaces. Yeah, of course, they're aiming for munition stuff. But I mean, if if, if, if you want to talk about collateral damage in uh, or, you know, there weren't any there wasn't even any dogma of like smart, smart bombs at this point. It's just you know, fire away with the, with the, with the heavy guns. And so, yeah, Veracruz surrenders, uh, more quickly than expected under this very intense, heavy bombardment. And, uh, they end up, you know, the, the Mexicans, even in their, their sort of strong fortified castle, uh, end up, uh, end up yielding. And so then once Scott gets to, gets to Veracruz, he spends a, he takes a long time. I mean, he's not quick. This is not lightning war. He takes six months to meticulously wind his way up. He, he wants to get get out of Veracruz pretty quickly to avoid the yellow fever, but then he gets up into the highlands and he really takes his time. And Santa Ana, you know, I don't want to say to his credit, but Santa Ana is giving him, um, you know, heavy static at every way. You know, there's he, Scott. It's not a cakewalk into Mexico City. Scott has to fight at Cerro Gordo. He has to fight at Churubusco. He has to fight outside the gates of, of Mexico City. Six months later, he finally gets there. Actually, basically not so differently, you know, retreading the route that Cortez took, you know, when he was on his way to sort of make the conquest of 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 the Aztecs in a, in a residence that is not lost on uh, these Americans. I think Polk before office, this is a very Trump move. He gets a picture. So one of the generals gives him a picture of Cortez and he hangs it in the Oval Office uh, as a kind of, you know, uh, sort of acknowledged reference to you know i'm the new cortez and mexico mexicans also sort of talk about this as the as a sort of a new invasion on the on the model of cortez um and yeah it's uh it's 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 bloody and it's uh time consuming but scott manages uh to sort of uh you know make his way through those mountains across difficult terrain and um 
and sees, you know, the halls of the Montezumas, another phrase that then becomes etched in, you know, the U.S. Marine song or whatever. It's these resonances from 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 Cortez and the Aztecs. Uh, and and, you know, then there's a whole other story about how, you know, just like Taylor's army took Monterey and sat there for a long time. Um, Scott's army takes Mexico City and sits there for the better part of a year as, you know, the Mexican government has basically collapsed. But it's very difficult to figure out how the the end game um, uh, after after the invasion. But what we get finally in February of 1848 is the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which uh, take gives to the United States, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. Just a huge buff of America's stats across the board there in the West, uh, yeah. and sets the stage for. A, a political battle over what to do with those territories uh, and also sets the stage for generations of political instability in Mexico itself after that. Uh, Most of the Pac-10, the better part of the uh, Big 12, uh, and then not to mention the WAC and the, you know, the Mountain West Conference. So, I mean, imagine sports, you know, without Southern California and Oklahoma, you know. They'd all be playing soccer. There'd, yeah. there'd be no high school football or college football to be found. It'd be horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's, 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 this, this is contentious because there's, you know, different factions in Washington that want different things. And, and there are some, especially a lot of, um, the most gung ho on this are the Northwesterners. That is like the, the sort of Ohio and the, the sort of the Democrats, the expansionist Democrats from Ohio to, to, to Wisconsin who are the sort of the heartbeat with a few Southerners of the all Mexico movement that want in these negotiations to say, Hey, look, we conquered Mexico city. Let's take the whole shebang. Let's set up shop over this, literally this entire continent South of Canada up to the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, which was also by the way, in revolt, uh, against, um, against, uh, against the state of Mexico, which had its own problems. I mean, we haven't even mentioned that mo most of this territory, a lot, a huge part of West Texas and what is now New Mexico up into Colorado and then deep into Northern Mexico, was really effectively controlled by Comanches at this point. Um, you know, the, the the Mexican state had a really limited purchase on a lot of this land, uh, and the kind of the ongoing Comanche raids across the twenties, thirties, and forties um, really opened the door in some ways for um, weakening nor the sort of what had once been, at least in, by some accounts, the sort of the, the Mexican army had its strongest presence in northern Mexico, partly to to clamp down on the restive natives, but uh, that is both the local Mexicans and, you know, Native Americans who are fighting with the Mexican state or conduct conducting raids. But really, it leaves, the Comanches have left a lot of Mexican defenses in a shell. But alternatively, once the U.S. takes over, um, you know, the, the Comanches themselves are, are a bit worn out. And the role, the way this land is all rolled up into, into U.S. territory, a huge chunk of it, kind of helps facilitate a massive seizure of land from Native people, too, uh, 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 across this period, which, which I guess we, we should mention as part of this war. I have a colleague um, a uh, guy at, uh, at Columbia is writing a book on the U S Mexico war it, precisely as a kind of sky called Jacoby as a, um, as a war, you know, against native Americans too, which, which like the, like the war of 1812 was the Creek war, you know, and was about as much about fighting Britain as, as it was, you know, clearing out Alabama from the natives, uh, the Mex the, the war of Mexico, similar, similar function, especially in the Southwest. Anyway, all that being said, uh, you know, the U.S. is, after some serious revolts in Taos and in Los Angeles, among other places, is back firmly in control of all of the land that is now the U.S. And so it's hard to imagine an agreement being made at this point after all this bloodshed uh, that wouldn't have included that land. The question is the rest of Mexico. And in the end, the envoy that they send, this guy Nicholas Trist, um, you know, the instructions from Washington are vague and conflicting, and he ends up making a making a making an agreement that is Guadalupe Hidalgo, that is the borders we know now. Polk hates it, but he has to swallow it. The bulk of the country wants peace and they want this land. And it's a relatively cheap price, too. And everything was fine after that. That's the thing to remember, most importantly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. They all lived happily ever after. Uh, the forbidden fruit went down deliciously, just like that Palo Alto root beer. <laughs> yeah. All right. No conflicts on the horizon for the United no, States. It's all smooth sailing after that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that'll do it for now. I think, uh, in future episodes, I think we'll talk about what came next. What's, uh, uh, where, where we ended up, uh, can't wait to talk about, uh, 
one of my favorite elements, uh, incidents in Mexican history, uh, good old Maximilian, the poor, uh, Austrian chump just stitched up by oh, yeah. uh, Napoleon the third and left to get shot down like a dog. Matt, I want to hear you do your, your, your epic German accent, but with a Spanish accent on top of it, like Maximilian speaking to his people. I'd love that. Work yeah, that, that out. People, that's definitely going to go over well when I do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is all a direct consequence of this, this massive dismembering of a country that was already sort of under in a debt imperialist relationship with uh, European powers before the war uh, and then became basically a uh, in hoc to the French afterwards to the point where uh, they actually the mad lad Napoleon III actually tried to bust <laughs> through the Monroe corridor because he thought that these I guess he thought the Civil War would just go on forever. <laughs> and that we never settle, never fix it, and and no one would notice. But of course, that's not what happened. Uh, but that's for a future episode. Uh, for now, thank you very much, uh, Matt, for talking us through this one. Yeah, good times. Let's have some. Let's break open some root beer. Honestly, now I, don't, I haven't had root yeah. beer in forever. I would love some. Yeah, no, I'm getting thirsty. Uh, we have to pray. Let us pray. <laughs>